Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. It's Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and this week we'll have some recent European history with Brian McKinlay. The UN Human Rights Council has come down with a decision that there should be a war crimes court for Sri Lanka. We'll hear the, the opinion of Dr Brian Sinimaratna. Ecuador and Venezuela, countries we hear about in Latin America, South America, which appear to be have a bit of problems at the moment. Fred Fuentes, an author and journalist, will be telling us whether that's true or not. But first, let's have it for Mr Kevin Healy and see if he's got over the election result yet. A weak journalist, but when profound apologies, no excuse other than wishful thinking got in the way of reason. Building all our hopes at the end of this segment last week with that piece of very bad poetry, assuming stroke hoping the Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats, Peter Duffer, would end up in the Parliamentary Detention Centre, but no such luck. Sorry. The only comment is, given he was retained, what's it say about the competence of those who weren't retained or or just didn't make it? On not making it, that footnote in history, tiny a bit more for the bosses, was abiding by his, I will not undermine, I will not undermine pledge. Scuttle them, scuttled me. But as new big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull settled in, there were obvious positives. Good news, Malcolm. We'll now have a real policy to address climate change seriously. Yes, I believe climate change is not utter crap. I believe we have to address the problem seriously. Uh, So how will we now address it? We will pursue the issue with indirect inaction. But but, but that's what we've got now. That's the utter crap policy. Exactly, but the positive is it is now not utter crap. Just ask Barnacle. And if anyone knows anything about utter crap, it's it's Barnacle. Well, at least we'll get a conscience vote on marriage equality. You still believe in that, don't you? Religiously, if that be the expression, religiously. So any day now. One day now we will hold a plebiscite. Uh, But that was also Tiny's ploy to stop that. Look, surely it's good enough that my conscience supports the issue, particularly given the nature of my electorate. Lots of those people, but a plebiscite's the democratic way to go, isn't it, Barnacle? More importantly, Malcolm, it is, you know, like a conscience vote. My my conscience will not, you know, like condone a conscience vote. See? So I am allowing a conscience vote. Although with Barnacle, and let's hope he doesn't hear this, it could be called an unconscious vote. And on that, I'm handing the future of our great riverways to the unconscious irrigators who vote for the Hayseed and Sheepshit Party. So what differences will we see then? Well, that's pretty obvious. I'm taller, more urbane, more handsome, highly intelligent, very witty, and most importantly, very, very rich. Indeed, it's the one downside to achieving my lifelong ambition, with a little little help from Barnacle and that whopping boar who's his supremo, Rabbit Warren or something. The one downside is having to downsize, slum it at that tiny lodge place. Well, 
well, ex-tiny lodge place now, but at least I can stay home in Sydney and won't have to slum it in that Kirribilli hobble. Billy, Billy T. Barnacle, we love that out in the bush, don't we? Can't like, you know, stand it, Malcolm. No, no, I loathe it myself, Barnacle. Down at the sundry trades halls around the country, they were throwing parties and laying out the party pies and barbecued snags over the demise of the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Erica Betts, on the bosses. Good riddance to bad, they raised their glasses. Uh, by the way, who's the new minister? Her name's Michaela Cash for the bosses, bash the workers. The caring employers informed them, looking very smug, very pleased with themselves. Uh... Does she know anything about the workplace? She's an expert. She was a senior partner with Free Kills the Workers, our very own, very favourite, bash the workers, big end of town law firm. Yes, a former senior partner at Free Kills the Workers is now Minister for Killing the Workers. But in fairness, she'll be neutral. See, if a socialist government appointed an ex-evil union boss as Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, we'd never hear the end of it. The caring employers and the caring employer media lot screeching bias and impartiality, but their lot are so sophisticated and fair that Michaela will now look at both sides of the equation. Well, she doesn't need to because there's no such thing as class struggle anyway. Both sides, which are the one side, and come down on the one side. It, it's like industrial relations tribunals. Caring employer appointments are just so fair, so dispassionate, they only rule 100% for the caring employers after proper consideration. Whereas biased, loaded, evil union appointments give improper consideration before finding for the caring employers. Just to prove they're not biased, which doesn't prove it because the caring employers know they are anyway and aren't fooled just because they win every case. So we look forward to Michaela's careful considerations. In its usual even-handed approach to evil unions and lazy avaricious workers, the foul facts True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review told us she is expected to take a tough line against unions. A free kills the workers' partner? Gee, we'd never have thought. Workers have so much to look forward to. Thank goodness they have that lion of the labour movement, as Malcolm and Michaela's lot call him, our old mate Martin Cliché, who backed the workers to the hilt yet again. At the end of a day, when the sun sets, etc., he said evil unions were holding resource projects to ransom, threatening legal industrial action to push demands. Good God, demands. Marty called for changes to the law so evil unions are excluded from the law. We must change the law to protect the world's great resource giants from evil unions and evil environmentalists and local communities who abuse the law by, how dare they, using it and worse, very occasionally winning. At the end of a day, we must look at these irresponsible appointments to the bloody bench. Speaking of the balanced caring employers media, we mentioned last week how that proud US of the UN of the US of the world citizen, Lord Rupert of Wapping, would attack, a uh, sorry, report new British Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Jeremy Corbyn with fine balance. Lord Rupert's renowned objectivity, no sensational anti-Corbyn headlines day after day, the sort of balance his whopping sin gives state Supremo hoo-hoo here.
And who, who doesn't even pretend to be left? Jeremy leaving Parliament for the night, for instance. Good night, I'm straight to bed. Yes, with Lord Rupert's fourth estate community watchdog fairness. Reckless, hard-left economic vandal Corbyn in late-night sex romp. Yeah, balance, fairness, Lord Rupert style. And I guess they can hack his phone and computer and things. Not that Lord Rupert or any of his honourable family would know anything about that. The, the buck stops at the bottom. On the media, the Getting Your Priorities Right Award of the Week to the Capitalist Review again after that huge earthquake struck Chile a week after they mourned the 9-11 tragedy, the murder and slaughter under General Pinch of Shit in 1973, orchestrated by the great protector, the US of. But I digress. Huge earthquake causing death, injury and damage, particularly in poor neighbourhoods. And the Capitalist Review headline and story? Chile's giant copper mines escape quake. Chile's largest copper mines escaped damage from an 8.3 magnitude earthquake that struck, etc. Phew, what a relief. That's all that matters. Look, in fairness, they did mention deep, deep in the story somewhere there had been death and injury as adobe structures crumbled. But that's incidental, sort of collateral damage. And in the US of the same deep concern for loss of life. General Profits Matters, the car company our great Socialist Party Socialist Kimil Cars Don't Pollute believes should be handed the public purse as a giant step towards socialism, settled a case over at least 170 people dying through a defect the company was aware of but shut up about. It agreed to pay 900 mil pocket money in return for not facing charges and no individual was being charged with killing 170 people. Bet those Afro-Americans rotting on death rows across the US I wish they had a bit of pocket money to buy their way out. Well, what's a minimum 170 deaths when it comes to a great corporation trickling down all those yellow drops of social benefits like all the other deaths caused by its exhaust pipes, on which they are throwing the book at Volkswagen for rotting pollution tests when their emissions were in fact up to 40 times the allowable limit in VWs and Audis and their range of polluters. I think their defence is pretty watertight. Our profits, their deaths. It's a no-brainer, as you U.S. officers say. The U.S. OBS Secretary for World State John Caring for Train Killers attacked Russia for threatening peace by sending military advisers and instructors to Syria. We know these warmongers are there, he raged righteously, because our great peace-loving U.S. OBS train killer advisers and instructors uncovered them. Finally, with all this shuffling of the deck chairs, parliamentary democracy was summed up succinctly by this Greek interviewed at the polls last weekend. We should vote for the least useless so he does less damage. No matter who is elected, it is others who rule. Wisdom on democracy from the cradle of. Good afternoon. And thanks to Mr Kevin Healy for his week that was. Let's turn now to history with Brian McKinlay. Jan, today I thought we'd look at some things about the history of the European community and its predecessors, the what was once called the common market. And I think for some of our listeners who are not as old as I am, the European community as such might seem like one of those fixed institutions like 
the United States of America, or, as would have been the case a little while ago, the Soviet Union. But, as we know from modern history, nations and conglomerations, if we can call it that, of nations, break up and, and fall apart on occasions. Now, the European community, with nearly half a billion people, and some of the world's great industrial nations, like Germany, the one of the great nations, Italy and France and Spain and Britain, uh, have a greater GNP, a greater economy than the United States of America. And some Americans, it has to be said in the past, presidents and others, have looked with a bit of puzzlement on the challenge that the European economy offers to Europe, as it does, of course, uh, to Russia and China. Now, in the last few months, we've seen a series of crises since the, I should say years, really, since the world financial crisis in the early part of this, this century, in 2008. Europe has been beset by a series of grave financial crises. Well, grave because the bankers tell it so. But we look at the crises in Greece and equally serious crises in Spain, Portugal and Italy. What what the writers sometimes call the Club Med countries, the poorer relatives, as it were, of the European countries, because you do have great variations. If you think of the Commonwealth of Australia as a kind of community of different self-governing states, living standards in Australia are because we have a federal government that controls all sorts of things, living standards are relatively the same. If you go to Perth or Brisbane or Melbourne, you'll find both the same problems and the same advantages. We have poverty here, we have unemployment, but most Australians live well, and this is pretty well spread out across the countries. To give you an example of a country where this isn't, I visited twice to a country I really came to love, and that's Argentina. Now, Argentina hasn't had a sharing of wealth through a Commonwealth state agreement. We have these annual talk fests when the premiers go up to Canberra and argue who's going to get what. Well, that's not ever been done in Argentina, and they have self-governing provinces like we do, uh, they call them provinces, but they're states. And these self-governing provinces have always been much less rich, if I put it that way, than the capital city, Buenos Aires, which is a handsome city, by the way, one of the great cities of the world. So you have great differences in Argentina between the poverty in the, some of the rural provinces or, or the lower living standards, I should say, and um, those of people in Buenos Aires. Though Argentina, as you know, has been a country with a pretty troubled political history for a long time. And, and that's partly due to that cause. Now, how did the European Union, as it's now called, as to, uh, the European community it was formerly called, and then before that the common market, come into existence? Well, if you look at the past history of Europe, one thing about Europeans is they're very tribal. If you look at a country like China, you find a vast country where... There are differences in regions, in dialects and uh, other things, but you find a huge country like China has a very similar structure. That's pretty much the case of Russia, despite the problems with the Ukraine in modern times. But in Europe you have dozens of languages, and dozens even in Spain, 
which uh, you well in countries like Spain particularly you have local dialects and you have this in Italy where Sicilian Italian is quite different I'm told I don't speak it but I talked to an Italian friend recently about this and to the language of say Milan it's all Italian but there are also great differences as you know and I know there are even differences in Britain if you go to England to various parts of the country you get people speaking a different way and I have an old English friend who's lived here for years but he he can talk in the thing called Scouse which is the sort of common language like a dialect of Liverpool he's a Liverpool man and he can talk away in, in, in this funny um, sort of dialect with all sorts of unusual words in it that I couldn't understand some of what he'd said that's common in Europe in Germany you have a, a very distinct language in Hamburg for instance a German but uh, spoken very differently Europe has always been like this and of course added to this there have been problems of ethnic minorities who were stuck in a country that they didn't much like and that has led in the 20th century to all sorts of rebellions. If you think of the Scots today and the Scots are now again our listeners may not have followed this but since the defeat of the referendum last year by 45 or 46 percent to 53 or 4. The Scottish nationalists who won magnificently at the British general elections and captured all but two seats from Scotland, they got I think 57 seats to one Labour and one Liberal. The Conservatives didn't get a single seat in Scotland. Scotland is just so anti-Tory that they might as well give up. The Scots nationalist movement is now on the march again and are clearly looking to another referendum which they believe will this time carry them to independence. And the same is happening, by the way, in a major area of Spain called Catalonia, which is that area along the French border on the Mediterranean. And the Catalans make up about 7 million people. And Barcelona, the capital, is not only one of the great cities of Europe, if you don't know it, you might understand why a Spanish writer once called it Paris's little sister. It's got all sorts of wonderful things about it. Catalonia was one of the great centres of opposition to Franco and fascism. Franco never, ever could suppress the Catalans as much as he wanted to. And right through his regime, there was a, a large underground resistance to fascism. When Franco went, Catalonian politics flourished. Now, the left parties in Catalonia have taken up the idea of independence from Spain, not just autonomy, which they already have. They've got a parliament of their own, as the Basques have, by the way. But they want a complete nation-state. Did I mention what someone once said about dialects and in Catalonia, not just a dialect, but they speak a language called Catalan, which it sounds a bit like French and a bit like Italian and a bit like Spanish when you hear it spoken. And one historian once said, always remember that a, the difference between a dialect and a language, that a language is a dialect with an army, meaning language differences often lead to the creation of a nation-state. In Southern Ireland, for instance, the official language of Ireland has been, since its independence from Britain, has been Gaelic. And most Irish people do speak English. It's universal. But in the schools in Ireland, they still learn Gaelic. And many Irish friends I 
no, no garlic, but never used it actually. It is used officially though in Ireland. Looking at this history of Europe, of dialects and languages and ethnic groups, of which there are dozens, and the old Habsburg Empire, which collapsed at the end of the First World War, included countries like Czechoslovakia, as it was later to become, Croatia, Slovenia, Bosnia, Serbia, or parts of Serbia, Macedonia, a whole cluster of nation-states. And in the way, in the end, the Habsburg Empire was absolutely doomed. We've just been remembering in recent times many of the events of the First World War, but the Habsburg Empire was held together by chewing gum and bits of string in 1914, and all the experts said it could not survive a major conflict because half the people in the empire hate the emperor in Vienna and would rather fight against him than fight for him. And that happened in the end. The uh, empire collapsed in a few in a week of turmoil when all these new countries of Eastern Europe came into existence. And, of course, it was a danger for the future. In the 20s and 30s, fascist movements flourished in places like Hungary. Europe was bound for turmoil uh, as the Second World War approached. The countries of the old Habsburg Empire all became independent, but that didn't solve any of their problems. You even had countries like... Serbia, where the Serbs were a majority but had a, a large component of Croats who were Catholic, as the Serbs were Orthodox, and even Muslim minorities scattered through the old Yugoslavia, which led to terrible massacres quite recently. Tragically, the collapse of the old Yugoslavia after Tito's death, and he'd held, T uh, held Yugoslavia together saw a series of civil wars which we all remember in Bosnia and Serbia and Slovenia uh, with a terrible death roll and nothing like it had been seen in Europe since the Second World War and that comes back to my point about the difficulty of European Union. After World War II there were a whole lot of people in Europe, uh, enlightened people basically, who said well look we've got to end all of this some way. General de Gaulle in France, who, who was a conservative, but he was also anti-fascist and fled from the Nazis to Britain and led the French resistance all through the war from Britain and later from North Africa. De Gaulle was one of those who put forward the idea of a European Union. Didn't much like the idea of having the British in it, which was seen by the British as a terribly ungrateful act although they supported him during World War II for their own benefit, of course. But de Gaulle and uh, several European leaders took up the whole cause, and they began very modestly. In the 30s, there'd been a, a thing called the Benelux Union. That was Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg, three small countries, which had a lot in common, and so they had a kind of customs union. Goods produced in the countries could be moved to those other countries, or three of them, and sold without taxes and tariffs and things. But if you brought in foreign goods, they had to go through the, the tariff system. So uh, other things, the railways were combined, small things like health. Uh, you, uh, no, I don't mean that's a small matter, but uh, it, it was easy to combine the hospital system quite easily done, as was the railway system. So all of these things had been coming into existence before the war and after the war, they 
ploughed ahead with them, and um, by the 60s, Benelux was a little model of what they hoped Europe would be like. Well, in 1967, those three countries, plus Germany, Italy, and uh, France, formed what was called the, the Common Market. Now, the Common Market was a way of extending trade between all of those countries, and that worked very successfully. Uh, there'd been a funny thing in Europe where a, a great deal of coal and steel in Germany and France was separated by borders and customs and so on. But the, much of the German coal industry after World War II, it had been rebuilt because it was bombed extensively, was close to the French border, and yet the French had to get their coal from more remote corners of France. And it made sense to combine, to, to allow the movement of coal and iron ore across the borders of France and Germany. And this became known as the coal and oil community. And there were various other schemes pushed through quite successfully. By 1967, they were ready to make a larger leap and there came into existence what was known, and you will remember the title, I'm sure, Jane, as I did, uh, The Common Market. Now, the only things that were, were done were trade and health and other things. There was no single currency. There was no unified administration. But that led on, of course... Um, one thing about France, by the way, de Gaulle once made the comment that a boy of 10, or a girl of 10, I suppose, born in Paris in 1860 would be an old man in his 80s if he survived all that time in 1945 when he had lived to see Paris occupied by German armies twice in his lifetime and on a third occasion in the First World War virtually uh, besieged for four years. Uh, that was because in 1870 the Germans, under the Prussians really, under Bismarck, who was a brilliant diplomat as well as a military leader, used the folly, the military folly of the Emperor of France, Louis Napoleon, the nephew of the great Napoleon, which prompted Marx, by the way, to a comment that some people have misinterpreted. He looked at France because Louis Napoleon was, somebody said he was the first fascist, but he was also one of those modern politicians. He did love the media of our time. He was a showman and with a beautiful wife who he didn't get on terribly well with because he was also a womanizer and she sort of turned away from the marriage and went shopping. Paris became the center under her, under her guidance, if that's the word, of shopping. Wonderful, if you had the money, wonderful dress shops and hat shops, and uh, she patronized them all and uh, gave the French a kick along in the shopping stakes. Now, in 1870, that regime collapsed when Louis was defeated by the Prussians. That was the Franco-Prussian War. Only a short war, about three or four months, but it was all over, and there was a revolution in Paris, and the Republic came into existence again. You're listening to European History with author and historian Brian McKinlay. A child of ten would have lived through all that. Terrible times in Paris. There was a siege before the city fell, and people ate any food they could get. Even the animals in the zoo were slaughtered to provide food. The next terrible event, it was 1914 and four years of World War I, and the war came to the gates of Paris several times. 
and uh, the city was short of food and besieged in a sense. And then, of course, in 1939-40, the Nazis in 1940 captured France and occupied the city for four years. So this 85-year-old man we're talking about would have seen his city three times in his lifetime under attack from Germany. Now, de Gaulle took an enlightened view of this. He thought the best thing that could be done in Europe was for Germany and France to become close economic allies, and later, in a sense, military allies, although the Americans interfered in that. That was how the first of these ventures I've mentioned, the iron and steel community and other things, came into existence. But in the years that followed, and de Gaulle was president of France on two occasions, and uh, it was true of the German leaders, by and large, both conservative and social democrats, all adhered to these ideas. So there wasn't much division, and by 1967, it was formally dubbed the common market. Half a dozen countries, um, the major ones that I've mentioned, and also the Benelux countries, formed this new unit. Now, gradually, there came other institutions. There were regular meetings of the health ministers every three or four times a year, so European health was gradually combined. But then there came some other more dramatic inventions, and that was the idea of setting up two things. One, the European Parliament, in which people would vote for members of a parliament, and the second was the European Commission. Now, you and I think of a parliament, and for all the shortcomings of the ones we have, we expect a parliament will have an election, and after that it will produce the government from the winning groups and parties. Well, that wasn't how the European Parliament operates, and it doesn't today. Uh, it's assigned a kind of debating forum, and it can carry resolutions, but the key body in Europe is what's called the Commission, and it sits in Brussels. The Parliament sits in France, in Strasbourg, and the courts of the European community reside in Luxembourg. So it's a very diverse body. Now, the Parliament in Brussels can do quite a lot of things, but sometimes it's more symbolic than anything else. Uh, the Commission is what it takes the place of a Cabinet, but it's not elected by the Parliament, and it's not in any way a democratic body. What happens is the countries appoint commissioners. The big ones nowadays, when there's a much larger Europe, and countries like Spain, for instance, are members, get two commissioners, and little ones like Luxembourg or Belgium get one, or Ireland, which is in the European community. The community then allots these commissioners to various tasks. So there is a commissioner for health, uh, is a commissioner for transport, and they are pretty much like cabinet ministers in our system. But it means that the commission, the cabinet if we call it that, isn't under the control of the parliament. And while its nominated members are nominated by their countries, the countries don't have much control over them at all. And this has led to all sorts of arguments that the European community, for all its strength, isn't really a very democratic body. And I don't think anyone would argue to that case. Now, of course, the Commission, like all powerful bodies, more power. That's the nature of human government, I think. So with the passage of time, the Commission has become very powerful and it's taken over all sorts of functions and duties that were not once thought of. The final and, and now seems catastrophic action was about a decade ago to set up the euro, a single currency. This was seen as an enormous step forward and it would unite Europe. But it also meant that 
countries lost control of their own currency. Now, governments use currencies when there's a crisis in the country, a financial crisis. They can devalue their currency. They'll do the other thing. I mean, at the moment, we're seeing the Australian dollar devalued. But in Europe, the euro is a single unit. And so when one country like Greece got into massive trouble from borrowing, borrowing, by the way, by the very rich in Greece and by other Greek bankers and people like that, the ordinary common Greeks on the street had no say in this, really. They're paying the price. It's a fact of capitalism, isn't it? When things go wrong, make the poor pay. When things go right, it'll be the, the rich who profit. The Greek crisis has highlighted the real weaknesses of having a single currency for a number of countries that's not really under anyone's control. And the Greeks have been the victims of this. The whole system is now reeling. Add to this two or three other critical issues. The influx of immigrants and refugees from countries like Libya and Syria and uh, Iraq that have been virtually destroyed by the follies of Western foreign policy, not just the Americans, but the French and the British. If you remember, the French were full-on with have, trying to overthrow Gaddafi. And what they've got now in Libya is a failed state like Somalia. Now, for all his sins, Gaddafi ran a pretty coherent country. Now, Libya has just collapsed. And 180,000 people from all parts of Africa have poured through the failed state onto the shores of Sicily and Italy and Malta and other countries in the area. The same is happening via Turkey and Greece. And we've seen these distressing scenes of people in trying to get to Europe uh, and Germany in particular and their sufferings and their tremendous journeys that they're making. I've watched it night after night on the BBC telly and I'm always shocked at the, to see these little kids of three or four who must have been on the road for weeks being cared for by their parents. And you think, oh, that poor little boy, he needs a good feed and he needs a decent bed and he, all of that, but he's not getting that. He is one of this vast stream of people who are causing internal political problems in countries like Hungary and elsewhere and will cause an enormous problem, I think, in Germany. With half a million already there, Italy's got 180,000. Now, nobody in their right mind ever foresaw this sort of crisis. And it's the product of failed Western policies in the Middle East. The Americans' attack on Iraq is a classic, and the way they supported the rebel groups in Syria at the beginning before it suddenly occurred to them, oh, hey, these people are actually militant Islamists in ISIS, whereas Assad's government, and it's still there in Damascus, is actually a kind of secular government, as was Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein. So these crises, combined with another that you don't hear much of, but it's affecting the economies, is the American intervention in Ukraine which has enraged the Russians and led to uh, Russian embargoes on stuff from European countries. And in, indeed, the Americans persuaded countries like Poland and Holland to put embargoes on Russian goods. Now, that was a stupid idea, as so American foreign policies are. Uh, uh, because what happened, Poland this last summer has been awash with apples because the Russians are their greatest single customer for Polish apples, which are an enormous crop in Poland. The Dutch have lost their 
market in Russia for cut flowers, tulips especially. And while you and I may not think of that as a major industry, it certainly is in Holland. And dairy foods from countries like Denmark and Holland have been banned by the Russians, who are getting much of their dairy foods from New Zealand, interestingly. Now, all of this has created, along with the migrant crisis and the crisis of the currency, has created a crisis in the economy. It's not doing the Russians any good either. They are buying products from other countries, more expensive product, and would like to go back to patronising the Poles or the Dutch. But um, the Europeans are now determined to, to go ahead with these policies, and the Russians, in return, are digging their heels in. We now see, at the end of about 15 years of this currency crisis, the Ukrainian crisis and the migrant crisis all beginning to affect the countries of Europe massively. Only a few, like Germany and Denmark and Holland, have maintained a reasonable degree of prosperity. In Spain and England, if you could include it, though it's not a part of the Eurozone, in Spain you now have very strong independence movements, both in the Catalan region of Barcelona and also in the Basque country. And one can imagine that Spain might well break up into a number of countries. This sort of feeling is growing all over Europe, added to which, as the European economic crisis, the world crisis, has impounded on Europe, there has been a growth on the far right, indeed in some countries on the left, of new political parties. In Spain, a left-wing party called Podemos has driven the Spanish socialists, who have been quite recently in government in Spain, into a corner. And Podemos has had some remarkable local electoral victories. A young radical man from Podemos, it's a socialist party, won the mayoralty of Madrid itself. And in many other Spanish cities, Podemos is a coming force. It might well win the next Spanish elections. We've already seen the left win power in Greece on the back of this crisis. And in England, we have groups like UKIP, who simply want to withdraw all entirely, as does France's National Front, run by a formidable lady called Marie Le Pen, uh, want to withdraw from Europe, close down the European community altogether. And this is universally the view of these far right-wing parties which have emerged in countries like Hungary, to a degree in Poland, in several other countries. The European community under challenge from every direction and one wouldn't have thought at the turn of the century, 15 years ago, everything was coming up roses for the European community. We'll have to look now and see how all these crises play out. As I said, uh, we're a long way from the developments in the 1950s and 60s. Europe has this cluster of institutions. Now, there are other bodies in Europe, one called the Council of Europe, which is a kind of talk fest, uh, a consultative body that works together on physical crises, though they're not doing very well with the crisis arising from the immigration event. Different governments have taken different stances and put up borders and treated the immigrants with varying degrees of severity. Hungary has given a classic example of a harsh right-wing government that is treating the refugees even worse than we've treated people in places like Manus and Nauru Island. These crises <coughs> impound on Europe 
One of the developments, of course, has been the conflict, the war, which has now died down in the Ukraine. The, the first conflict on the European continent, if you count Russia and the Ukraine as part of Europe, since World War II, except for the horrors of the Yugoslavian civil war. Putin, in turn, has made a great economic turnabout towards the Chinese, who are now assuming a huge role in producing consumer goods for the European that the Europeans once sold to Russia. Putin's recently been to China for the uh, anniversary of the end of World War II, and the links between Russia and China, which have grown from this American intervention in the Ukraine, and the fact that the Europeans went along with it, has cemented relations between China and Russia as haven't been seen in more than half a century. So the Chinese now have a plan for a super railway along the Trans-Siberian Railway to, to build new tracks. And the Trans-Siberian is a marvellous railway system running eight days across Russia and into China. This new high-speed rail system they're planning, pretty mediocre, pretty ordinary event when you talk about it, but it will allow fast high-speed trains running at a couple of hundred kilometres an hour to carry Chinese goods to Russia and then onwards into Europe, saving the long costly shipment of goods around the world from China to Europe by boat. So all these events are part of this extensive European crisis. It's said that in the European capitals, the capital where there is most disquiet with American policies around Russia and the European community is in Berlin, because uh, Russia has been, in recent years, the largest single customer for German goods. And the Germans have gone along with all this very reluctantly, and in, including the fact that the Chinese would like to extend these high-speed trains, and will, I guess, into Germany and make use of German ports and railway connections to sell these Chinese goods right across Europe. And you've been listening to historian and author Brian McKinlay with his recent history of Europe. And you are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR, where the time now is 4.42. And you could be listening on your radio, 8.55am, digital radio, 3CR, or you might have your computer in front of you and you can queue into 3cr.org.au. It streams live and you can listen for a week on your computer and then it goes on to the next week, but you can have it podcast to your computer where you can listen at your leisure. Then most of that information is at 3cr.org.au. Left After Breakfast presents the legendary Left After Lunch, a very special getting-to-know-you day and fundraiser where you will rub shoulders with legendary luminaries and swap stories with other legendary listeners. Tickets are $25 and $30. So come on down for Left After Lunch on Sunday the 1st of November from 1pm to 4pm at Eco Centre St Kilda Botanic Gardens. Visit 3cr.org.au for more information. Are your energy bills too high? 
Are you having trouble paying them or understanding what they mean? Tried to save money by changing your energy provider but found it all too complex? Targeted information for ethnically diverse and disabled energy consumers is available via a telephone and email advice service run by the Alternative Technology Association. If you are having trouble with your energy bills and want some advice, contact the helpful staff at the Alternative Technology Association on 9631-5427 or at energy at ata.org.au I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. Council has called for a special war crimes court to investigate quote-unquote horrific abuses committed by both sides in Sri Lanka from 2002, but especially during the final stages of the war in 2009. The report's main findings include numerous unlawful killings between 2002 and 2011, allegedly by both sides, enforced disappearances affecting tens of thousands over decades, the brutal use of torture by security forces, in particular during the immediate aftermath of the conflict, extensive sexual violence against detainees by the security forces with men as likely to be victims as women, forced recruitment of adults and children by the rebels, particularly toward the end of the conflict. The Council also rejected Sri Lanka's plan to set up a South African-style Truth and Reconciliation Commission instead. At the weekend, I spoke with Brisbane human rights activist Dr Brian Sinaratna and began by pointing out that in the past he has been extremely critical of the UN Human Rights Council and asked him if the recommendations of a war crimes court has led to a change in his opinion of the court. Not at all. It's just a joke. It's a joke, and it's a joke, actually, as is always the case. You see, the problem is, I think that people should understand that you can pass any resolution you want, but if there are no penalties attached for non-compliance, it is useless. And the Sri Lankan government and the Syrian government and everybody else knows that the UN Human Rights Council does not have any penalties for non-compliance. So the only one thing <laughs> that they put which is of importance is advice that the Sri Lankan government signs the Rome Statute. Now that they are not going to do and everybody knows that because once you sign the Rome Statute, the criminals in the country can be taken to the International Criminal Court. One of the criminals is the current president, who was the defense minister, acting defense minister, when the worst atrocities were committed. Now, he's not going to 
volunteer to be taken to the International Criminal Court. High Commissioner Zaid knows that full well, that Sri Lanka has not and will not ever sign the Rome Treaty or whatever the thing is called. As Jeffrey Robertson QC clearly stated in an interview that he gave, not one, two or three, he said, we can forget about charging these people before the International Criminal Court because Sri Lanka, in the International Criminal Court is founded on the Rome Statute. And if, the, if you are not a signatory to the Rome Statute, the International Criminal Court cannot try you, and even if they do, they don't need to abide by what the Criminal Court says. So I would have said that you are looking at a major human rights problem. The first thing to do was to admit Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch in the country. Amnesty International wasn't even mentioned in the 436-page submission, which I read painfully till 4 o'clock in the morning two days ago, to see what have these guys said. They said nothing. The 30th of September will come and go, and the Sri Lankan government will say, yes, 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 we'll be good boys, give us another year. And in that year, I think all the Tamils in the north and the east will be replaced by Sinhalese. And then they will say, well, there's no problem now, because uh, there are happy, smiling faces in the north and the east, and there will be happy, smiling faces, except that they will be Sinhalese and not Tamils. to be outnumbered, or dead, or disappeared, or uh, have left the country. Well, who are these people who have been investigating for a period of six years and written, what you just say, 400-page recommendation? Oh, yeah. uh, this is a, a group set up by Prince uh, three very distinguished people. One of them is the Governor General, former Governor General of New Zealand, and uh, two others whom I can't remember. But they're very distinguished people. And <laughs> interestingly, they tried to get into Sri Lanka to get some information, and they were told to get out. <laughs> and Zaid says, well, even if they were asked to get out, we got enough information outside to write this report without them getting to Sri Lanka. In that case, why did he send them there? You know, the whole thing is one colossal joke. I addressed a meeting yesterday, and there were Tamils there. They were all jumping up and down saying, oh, at last we've trapped the Sri Lankan government. I said, you have done nothing of the sort. You have had a report which the Sri Lankan government will completely ignore or agree to do exactly what they've been asked to do and not do it. And what are you going to do about it? Nothing. Because you've got no censors, you see. The trouble is, Brian, the, the mainstream media worldwide has, has applauded this decision. Absolutely, absolutely. And so will the government of Australia and will the government of the US and Canada and the UK. You see, the whole thing is a geopolitical business. America wanted Sri Lanka under Rajapaksa to look more at Washington than Beijing. The only way of doing that was to change the regime. It was a regime change. And they contacted Chandrika Kumar Tungabandanaka and said, can you arrange for a regime change? He said, well, I can't, but I, I know of someone in the Rajapaksa camp, his health minister and general secretary, who might contest him. And they managed to twist his arm, and he contested him and won. He won. Sirisena <laughs> won because of the Tamil votes. If the Tamils in the north and the east had not voted for Sirisena, in his own admission, Sirisena would have been seven foot underground. And that's what he said. He said, if I had lost this election, me and my family would have been seven foot underground. So Mr. Sirisena better remember that he is where he is and not in jail. 
as was uh, Sarat Fonseca, because of the Tamil votes. And if he forgets that, we will remind him. Well, where does it go from here, Brian? Uh, we, just go, we, we just go on as we have for the last six years. Uh, nothing's going to change. An international investigation, a domestic investigation we are going to have with international input. What input? Who's going to appoint the people? And where are they going to function? You know, these are all words without meaning. And the Zaid's team says we need a domestic investigation with international input. Sri Lanka will say, yes, fine, I will agree to that. And they already have. Ranil Vikramsinghe, the Prime Minister, yes, day before yesterday, said, under no circumstance will we be dictated to by people outside this country. And here the Prime Minister talking, my dear. And meanwhile, it's the Tamil people who are suffering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Tamil people, they are sort of non-people. Two million people in the north and the east, they have no... They are in a police state. Jaffna is in a complete police state, and it's overrun by drugs which never occurred when I was there. In all the years that I've known the Tamil people, they were not addicted to drugs. Today, the place is just wallowing in drugs, black money, prostitution, the law. Tamil society has folded up, and you may not be able to unfold it. That is my uh, real worry. I'd imagine sections of the singular population aren't too sure where they're going to go either. Yes, uh, but the Sinhalese, they've had actually a change of government. The Tamils have had nothing. Uh, at least the Sinhalese are now able to walk around and talk, which the Tamils can't. Yes, I think you are right up to a point, but there's more for the Sinhalese. More to come for the Sinhalese. As one of my uncles, who was a Marxist and a member of parliament for many years, said, until the Sinhalese are eating out of dustbins, you're not going to see a change. And I think he's right, as he always has been for many years. The Sinhalese are not yet eating out of dustbins. The only good thing is that the Sri Lankan government is broke. They've applied to the IMF for another loan, yet another loan, of $4 billion dollars. And for the first time that I can remember, they have been told no. They applied again. That application is just before uh, the IMF right now. They might relent and say, okay, you wanted $4 billion, here it is. And what do they want the $4 billion for? To pay the debt on the previous loan. Uh, laughable if people were not suffering. I'd imagine, Brian, though, that the, the IMF, the people who run the IMF are not going to push too hard because if, if they do push too hard, there's always China in the background willing Absolutely. to willing and able. Absolutely. It's all a geopolitical business. And since then, I will say, if you refuse us aid, we will go back to where we were. And I've been in Rajapaksa's cabinet. I know that we can get any amount of money from China because Whoever has a foothold in Sri Lanka controls the Indian Ocean. And I think it was one of the army generals uh, 100 years ago, uh, Admiral Mahan, who said, whoever has a foothold in Sri Lanka rules the Indian Ocean. Just finally, Brian, can I have your comments on the demise of Mr Abbott and turning the boats back? Will it make any difference? Yeah, yeah. For the first time, I have started watching television again. Because uh, Abbott raised my blood pressure so much that when my wife turned on the television, I walked out. Oh, it's nice to see him come down. Was it expected? Yes, it was. Um, 
I didn't think that Abbott was going to last a distance, nor for that matter do I think that the opposition leader will last a distance, and it may be time for change there too. But Abbott's demise has been very welcome in the Seniviratta family. Oh, I'm pleased about that. Oh, good. I'm glad your blood pressure is under control. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, uh, I can uh, do my relaxation watching television. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Brian. Okay. Thanks, Jan. And you might have heard Mrs. Senuaratna in the background there, also cheering on Brian. And that was Dr. Brian Senuaratna, Sri Lankan-Australian human rights activist for over 60 years, talking about the farce that continues in Sri Lanka. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. Thank you, Your Worship. The Marxist Cowboys is a short, subversive uh, film about the alleged criminal activities of the Marxist Victorian Labor College over a 40-year period, uh, Your Worship. And it is all true. Listen, mate, I'm facing a few criminal charges. Yeah, 325 fraud charges? Oh, they're all bullshit, mate. I was shocked. It has a cast of malcontents, including one Karl Marx. This bit of subversion will be shown with two other bits of subversion at 3CR on Monday the 5th of October at 7pm, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Check the website if you need more criminal ideas of crime. Just be there. I know I will be. Thank you, Your Honour. Saturday, September 26th will be the one-year anniversary of the forced disappearance of 43 Mexican students from the teacher training college at Ayotzinapa. These young activists were rounded up by police and reportedly handed over to a drug cartel. Mexico solidarity groups around the world will be marking the anniversary by screening a new documentary about these events called Ayotzinapa, Chronicle of a State Crime. Ayotzinapa, Crónica de un Crimen de Estado. This film will have its Australian premiere in Melbourne in a one-night-only screening at RMIT City Campus. Starting at 6.30 p.m. in Theatre 20, Building 80 on Swanson Street, on Saturday, September 26. Entry by donation. Visit the community calendar on the 3CR website for further details. This event is organised by Australians in Action for Ayotzinapa. A 3CR supporter. Finally, on Tuesday Home Time, we travel to South America, to Ecuador and Venezuela, with author and journalist Fred Fuentes. We begin with Ecuador, where it would appear from various media reports that the government is in trouble with right-wing protests threatening a coup in June, a threatened national strike in August, and some Indigenous and Labor leaders marching with the right against the President Correa. I asked Fred if appearances are the reality in Ecuador. I think that's a, an exaggeration that the media has been trying to 
put across uh, in regards to the situation in Ecuador. I mean, just to, to bring into a little context, prior to Correa being first elected as president in uh, 2006, none of the three or four previous presidents had even been able to finish out serving their, their term in government due to the, the kind of constant political crisis uh, that Ecuador was, was facing. Since being elected president, Correa has gone on to win two further presidential elections, the last of which was you know, only a, a year, a year and a half ago, which he won convincingly in the first round. And even most opinion polls today show his popularity. It's somewhere between 60 to 40%, depending on, on which of the polling companies you look at. Even if you were to take the worst-case scenario, for most uh, heads of state, having been in power for getting close on to a decade to still have 40% of support uh, is still pretty high. Having said all that, that doesn't mean that the government isn't facing important pressures uh, at the moment, important protest movements, and perhaps one of the more delicate situations uh, it's faced, with the exception of the, the sort of police revolt semi-coup attempt that occurred in September 2010. What we've seen essentially for the last six, seven months is, is a constant wave of street protests that in and of themselves have not threatened to throw out the government, uh, as has occurred previously, but have certainly put the sort of government in a sort of a, in check uh, in the sense that it's been unable to, to really sort of maintain that momentum it had, it had, been, uh, it had, had for, for the last sort of eight, uh, nine years uh, in terms of implementing the, the kind of policies it wanted to see for Ecuador. And what do the protesters want? This is what makes the situation perhaps in some ways more complicated, is that the, the protests uh, have come from all sides of the political spectrum. So on the one hand, uh, you've had uh, indigenous groups, uh, trade unionists uh, who have been criticising some of the laws that the government has either approved or wanting to approve. Uh, some of these have to do with labour laws, uh, laws in regards to uh, what to do with water and land reform uh, in the country. Uh, at the same time, you've also had sort of upper middle class sections of society, those that are more propensed perhaps to supporting the old right-wing traditional parties, uh, protesting against the other new laws the government wants to, wants to bring in, uh, which have to do with dramatically increasing taxes uh, or inheritance taxes and uh, profit taxes on companies and on, on the richest 2% in the country. So all, all of these protests, have, you know, all these sides have been out on the streets. As I said, not in numbers that have threatened to overthrow the government, but certainly in, in numbers that have created a lot of news and a lot of headaches uh, for the government. And what seems to be occurring is a kind of a confluence of these different sectors behind, at the very minimum, one key demand, which is opposition to uh, a set of proposed constitutional reforms, which has at the heart of it the ability for Rafael Correa to be able to stand once again for president in 2017. The, the current constitution only allows the president to stand twice in elections, obviously the first time and then to stand once for re-election, but not to be able to stand after that. Uh, the government has been talking about bringing in a set of reforms that would be discussed and voted on in parliament that would uh, remove that restriction and, as I said, would allow Correa to run in 2017. And that perhaps is the one point that seems to be uniting all those protests, all those whether left or right, uh, in opposition to the government. Can you tell me who is protesting against the water and land reforms and what they mean? The, yes, 
the main groups that have, that have been involved in that are probably those that are associated with, with Con A. Uh, Con A is the largest, uh, not the only one, but certainly the largest indigenous group in Ecuador. It, it was very much the heart of, of a lot of the social protests that occurred throughout the 90s that were behind a lot of that sort of, you know, that, that political instability that I mentioned before that saw several governments overthrown, unable to, to finish their, their term in government. Uh, they've been critical of the government in terms of not advancing enough on land reform, a, a criticism the government itself has, has accepted and is part of why it has begun a wide-ranging dialogue on the land reform law, uh, both with other Indigenous groups and with other um, farmer groups. Kone has not been willing to be part of those discussions uh, up, to, up to this point and continue to remain uh, critical of the law, although, as, as I said, discussion on the law continues to occur, so there's not a final draft as yet on that. Uh, so really, perhaps in, in some ways, there's more a, a question of a, a criticism of not, being, not, not enough being done, but one that the government has acknowledged in the inability so far to find a way forward on how to deal with, with this issue. What is the situation with land ownership at the moment? Well, it continues to be highly, highly concentrated. The wealthiest landowners continue to have large proportions of, you know, something like 44% of the, the sort of the better lands are in the hands of, you know, 1, 2, 3% of the, the largest landowners. So this, this is a situation that as yet, you know, you sort of, you know, it's really behind why you've had over the last 20, 30 years a, a mass exodus from the Ecuadorian countryside, either to the bigger towns and cities or even out, out of the country, essentially looking for livelihood elsewhere. So, you know, obviously you can understand why a lot of the rural populations, uh, which are not exclusively indigenous, uh, should be noted as well, uh, but, are, you know, have a high concentration of indigenous population, have been clamouring to see some, some sort of positive land reform uh, accompany some of the, the other steps that the government has taken that have been warmly received in, in rural areas, and particularly that has to do with uh, dramatic expansion of uh, services such as education, healthcare, uh, infrastructure projects that have, that have greatly benefited uh, these communities. But as I've said, both critics and the government himself acknowledge that the land redistribution is, is still a weakness that you know, somehow the government has to figure out a way to, to overcome. And what does the government hope to do with water reform? This has been a hotly contested issue, largely because there are there are three positions uh, in, in this debate. There are those that essentially want to see the old law, a uh, law that basically facilitated the privatisation of, of the water sector uh, to remain in place. So they've, they've fought tooth and nail uh, outside of Parliament and, of course, inside of Parliament through the old traditional parties uh, to block any, any sort of reform to, to the water law and are happy to keep the old one. On the other hand, you have the government uh, that is seeking to bring in a new law uh, that would put a definitive end to the privatisation of water, but has seen it come into conflict with some in uh, rural and indigenous communities over who then should exactly have control at the local level. Uh, would it be the government and the state, or should it be local communities that have greater control over, over local water access? There are other issues as well in debate as to mining companies and what access they should or shouldn't have to water resources. But again, these, these are questions that have, uh, are still being discussed, still being debated, uh, sometimes in forums that are held to, to discuss these issues and other times through, through protests in the streets, uh, particularly, as I mentioned, uh, by groups such as the CONA. But that, that's really the sort of the three positions that have been, been put forward. And that has led to, you know, at different times, different groups taking different positions. So, you know, at one point, 
Correa said that he would withdraw his water law if people were so opposed to it and that we essentially Ecuador would be left with a neoliberal privatising water law. At other times we've seen uh, members of the right-wing opposition speaking together on platforms with some uh, Indigenous leaders in protest against Correa's proposed water law. So all sorts of alliances have been formed over this debate as to what to do with uh, Ecuador's water, new water law. What's the situation with food sovereignty? Do they import a lot of food or do they produce their own food? Ecuador, like many other countries, I suppose, in, in, in South America, has always largely been a, a, a raw materials exporter. And, of course, in, in Ecuador's case, oil has been you know, a big part of, of its economy. Uh, so this has created, certainly created a situation, uh, one that continues to exist today, uh, where you know, essentially the large parts of their food are, are having to be imported. In fact, you know, and, and overall, in, in the last few years, what we've seen is that, uh, particularly as oil prices have fallen this year, that uh, Ecuador, the amount of Ecuador import uh, exceeds the amount uh, it, it's been exporting. This sort of need, I suppose, to increase to import food has also been during part in the last few years due to the mafia booming in basic goods consumption, largely due to the welfare distribution projects that the Korea government has brought in meaning that you know, many of the poorer people who previously perhaps couldn't afford access to certain basic goods are now able to, to buy them in, in supermarkets uh, in shops. So this is obviously creating a situation and is, again, part of this whole land reform law that is currently being debated that goes beyond just land ownership but also to the question of all land usage you know, and how, how best to deal with this situation that Ecuador currently faces in terms of food sovereignty. Why is Korea upset the trade unions and is it just a, a section of the trade union movement? I think it should be noted that it is a section. Probably, although you know, obviously this, this would be arguable, but I, I would say it's a minority section, but, but not a tiny minority. It's certainly a, you know, a, a significant minority and one that, that Korea uh, can't ignore. It unfortunately perhaps has to do in some cases to do with a bit of politicking in a bit of trying to seek out a better positioning vis-a-vis the government and trying to, to seek to position itself as uh, the more genuine representation of the trade union movement as opposed to those uh, sectors that have decided to work with the government, uh, which I should add has not made them unwilling to protest when they felt the need to, uh, but just have felt that in the current context uh, an approach that isn't based on just complete opposition, but rather one of working with the government where there are points of agreement and criticising and protest where there aren't. These sort of divisions in the trade union movement have played themselves out over, for instance, the new labour law, which on the one hand brings in a number of very important progressive measures, for instance, providing social security to what would be traditionally referred to as housewives or uh, women working at home as part of recognising the, the labour that they contribute to society. Also re- restrictions on the casualisation of labour force, increases in the minimum wages. So there are a lot of progressive aspects to this labour law, but some of the trade unions have taken exception to part or part of the law which has to do with state contribution to superannuation funding. They argue that this is meaning that the government is not willing to, to cop the burden that they should in regards to helping workers with the superannuation. The government says that it's not necessary as the, the, the increase of the superannuation contributions that workers are making due to dramatic increases in, in wages and contributions by companies I mean that the, the state doesn't have to do that. Whether that issue alone uh, merited you know, several protests and, and strike actions, uh, you know, obviously, is what the trade union movement um, has been debating in, in Ecuador. But, but that's really what has been a, a sort of a, a key issue of why some of the trade unions have, have opposed the new labour law. 
I read that the middle class is upset because he's raising the taxes or hopes to raise the taxes. What sort of taxes do they pay now? The specific laws are in regards to inheritance, what they have to do with those with extreme wealth when they pass away and, and their inheritance goes or their, their possessions are passed on to their family. They're already be taxed, uh, but they would be uh, much higher tax placed on those with, as I mentioned, what has been calculated to roughly work out to be the, the top 2% in terms of the wealthiest people in Ecuador. So, of course, the media campaign that was run behind this was that this law would affect absolutely everyone, that even you know someone with just a small home out in the countryside would lose 50% of it if this new law was to come into place when, rather than being able to pass it on to their children. And so it created a situation where the government was actually forced to withdraw that law because of mass opposition. I think polls had it at 60-70% opposition to the new inheritance law. However, at the same time, the government said that whilst it was withdrawing the law, it wasn't retreating on its aim and opened up a, a range of dialogues all over the country. And some 2,000 different forums were organised. And as in just in the last few days, announced once again that it will be reintroducing the law. However, it will be modified to ensure that it really is only the, the most wealthiest that are, uh, are hit by this inheritance law and, and hoping through, through that process to see if it can uh, win public approval for it and, and get it passed in, in Parliament. And who controls the media in Ecuador? Well, the media has always been and continues to be controlled by a small group of, of the mega-rich, really, and continues to be virulently anti the, the Ecuador government. This is nothing secret. I, I, you know, the WikiLeaks cable have, have shown that even, even you know, previous US diplomats in the embassy in, in, in Ecuador have sent information you know, where, where they talk about you know, how Correa criticises the media for being controlled by the corporate rich, and you know, he's, he's not wrong when, when he says that. I mean, there's plenty of cases where, that have been exposed of just how much the collusion there is between the media and, and the mega-rich, and perhaps known better example of that was the, the 1998 banking crisis where you know, everyone knew that the banking crisis was coming and everyone had exposés on which bank was going to collapse first, but because each bank also had you know, large shares in media corporations, none of them really wanted to report on this uh, and ensure that the banks could get out of the crisis as, as smoothly as possible and pass on all the burdens to the ordinary clients and, and to the state. Those same people continue to own large parts of the, of the media, despite efforts by the Ecuadorian government to bring the media in line with the new constitution that says that media ownership should be democratised rather than it being solely in private hands. It should be uh, redistributed so that 33% of media frequencies, TV, radio, are in the hands of private hands, are in private hands, 33% in public hands and 34% are in the hands of communities and, and local, local alternatives, uh, local uh, community media. That still is more, more an idea than a reality, but that's, that's what the government is aiming to do through its new media law that brings the constitution into legislation. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio 3CR, and I'm speaking with journalist and author Fred Fuentes. How much support is there for him wanting to overturn that constitution which says that people can only have the power twice? Well, there's two, two aspects to this. Firstly is that there's a question of the reform itself to the constitution. And I think that there would be, and polls seem, seem to indicate that there, there is enough, there's certainly support there for Correa at the moment anyway to, to be able to run again for a re-election. However, what there does seem to be a majority opposition to is the fact that this reform, along with others, because it should be mentioned this is just one of, I think, a package of about 16 reforms, 
that are to be discussed and voted on in Parliament as opposed to a referendum. And I think that's where the government is certainly finding much more difficult to win public support for and where the opposition have been really hitting the government hard, which is saying, well, why don't you let the people decide on these uh, 16 amendments or reforms that you wanted to the Constitution? So I think most polls show that perhaps the majority are, are opposed to the Parliament being the ones given the right to make those reforms as opposed to allowing the people to do so by a referendum. Finally, looking at the, these protests, which some of them have been going on for over a year, how has the government reacted? How has he controlled these protests? Have he, has he used the police to crack down on people at all? I, I think that the government's response has is, is, is sort of been a bit indicative in general of, of Correa's approach to working with, with certain social movements or, or certain groups uh, sort of in civil society. And that is a, a, a certain level of tolerance of dissent but also a, a strong belief that his government and the, the citizens' revolution, as, as, he, can, as he calls it, uh, has the majority support of the population and should be allowed to uh, get on with, with its agenda, irrespective of you know what, what some minority groups, as he would deem them to be, and the concerns that, that they're raising. And so what this has meant is that government has constantly gone back and forwards in regards to its position on wanting to dialogue, at first saying yes to dialogue, then saying there's, there's no point dialoguing with people that are you know, not willing to listen and then once again returning, uh, as they are currently, uh, to a position of, of wanting to dialogue, uh, although finding now that many of these same groups are not interested in dialogue, uh, given that they say they have no, no faith in the government. Uh, in terms of, of police repression, I, I think that you know, whilst there have been media claims that um, there have been you know, heavy-handed police tactics and I'm no doubt that perhaps certain incidences have occurred, I think overall the Ecuadorian state has tried to be as, as minimal in terms of its heavy-handedness, uh, certainly in comparison to previous governments. Uh, but I think in, in general, given the context that you know, there, there is ample evidence to show that there, there has also been violent elements, uh, obviously a tiny minority, but, uh, but certainly violent ele- elements within the, the protests uh, as well that have been seeking to, to stoke up violence, to stoke up tensions. Uh, obviously for their own political purposes. I think given that scenario, the evidence overwhelmingly shows that you know, in large in comparison to previous governments or most governments around the world, that security forces have, have always have sought in most cases to try to minimise any kind of repression or, or violence that may, may have ensured. Well, we can't talk about Ecuador without talking about Julian Assange. How is it viewed in Ecuador so many years later? I think, to, to be honest, probably in... in you know, in, in, in Ecuador itself, it's, it's not very much a, a talked-about issue. You know, occasionally, will appear in, in the media every once in a while, but it certainly does. You know, sort of perhaps gone on the back burner, perhaps because it has been going on for for such a long time. And this was in the context when, obviously, when Assange first sought asylum there, and the Ecuadorian government agreed to it. And, you know, it was a position that was widely supported. Uh, in Ecuador and, you know, continues to be uh, widely supported. I've no doubt that that's a big part uh, of why the the Ecuadorian government continues to stand uh, so firmly in regards to Assange, although obviously always at the same time making clear that it's willing to respect any any international laws and international treaties, but that, you know, up until until this date, you know, there's no evidence that other authorities are willing to respect and listen to the the rights of Assange in, in this case. Uh, and so the, the situation continues in, in the stalemate that it is um, that we've seen. Has Ecuador paid a price for its stand internationally? Not as far as I can tell. I, I, I mean, I'm, 
I think certainly, at least in, in public opinion, it certainly hasn't you know, lost anything in, in that regard. Uh, and I don't think anyone has really challenged it uh, in, in a diplomatic sense. I, I don't think any other government has sort of said, oh, well, if, you know, if you're going to use your embassy for such political processes, then you know, we'll, we won't allow you to have embassies or we'll ask you to you know, remove your embassy from our country. So I, I'm not aware of... The only thing I would say is that, of course, they have come under heavy pressure from the US government on this issue. Uh, but it, then again, this is only just one of many issues that, that Ecuador has come under heavy pressure from uh, from the US government, whether it be Assange, whether it be the closure of the previous military base the US had in Manta, uh, whether it be the you know, Ecuador's refusal to f- sign free trade agreements and its constant you know, standing up to US you know, in international bodies, be that the UN or the Organization of American States. So it perhaps has been used as one more tool, to one more stick to beat Ecuador with by, by those governments that already had a grudge against it, uh, but I, I don't think that you know the backlash has gone beyond that, as far as I can tell. Another country in South America which is experiencing a level of turmoil is Venezuela, and one court decision has ignited more protests, and that's the jailing of the the right opposition leader Leopold Lopez. Was the government right to pursue him? Oh, look, I think there's no doubt that the government was right to pursue him. And, and if anything, the, the sense that I get in, in Venezuela is that for many people, you know, the, they feel that it, you know, it was about time this person was brought to justice. Of course, there, there is the immediate issues of the ones that he was charged for and found guilty for, which was his role in the, you know, the string of violent protests at the beginning of last year that left you know, over 40 people dead. And you know, I think it was plainly evident that the key role he played in inciting violence there. But we're talking about a guy who, you know, was, you know, without a doubt involved in, uh, you know, in, in what occurred in 2002 in the, in the military coup attempt against Chavez, including, you know, with the, the siege that occurred on the Cuban embassy, the, the violent attacks that occurred on ministers at the time. This guy has a track record um, of, you know, extreme violence and, and of wanting to destabilise and overthrow a government. I think you know, in, in any other country in the world, this guy would have been uh, arrested, locked up, you know, probably sent to Guantanamo many, many years ago. But instead, it's taken, you know, more than a decade for him to be finally brought to trial for one, one of his many crimes. And I think in that regard, uh, many, many Venezuelans, uh, you know, if, if anything, wishing that he'd got a, a, longer, a longer jail sentence than the, the 13 years that he was handed down for his crimes. And what's happening on the border with Colombia? Well, this has been, an, you know, obviously a, a tense area for a long time. Firstly, uh, you know, because of irregular activities involving paramilitary forces, uh, mainly from the Colombian side of the border, crossing over uh, into Venezuela. And there's been a number of times where uh, Colombian paramilitaries uh, have been arrested, including for their involvement in, you know, attempted assassination plots against first Hugo Chavez and now the current president, Nicolas Maduro. But the problems have been exacerbated over the last year, two years, uh, due to the amount of contraband that has been flowing over the border. Cause of some of the economic policies being implemented in Venezuela, and particularly things such as price controls and subsidies on basic goods, you have a scenario where what might be very cheap on one side of the border can be sold for 30, 40 times that price on the other side of the border. And so there's been large quantities of goods, anything from food staples uh, to oil, which Venezuela having the cheapest petrol prices in the world, basically being used to being flooding over the border. You know, people on the other side of the, on the Colombian side of the border, basically making a living of uh, emptying out their, their petrol tank, crossing the border, filling up, 
coming back and unloading it and, and selling it there. That was put to a stop when the Venezuelan government tried to close the borders uh, in one of the main uh, thoroughfares between the, the two countries. Um, and this, of course, has then flowed on to further tensions. It should be also mentioned that the decision to close the border came after a paramilitary forces uh, attacked Venezuelan military, leaving three of them seriously injured. That occurred about a month ago, and that tense standoff between the two countries uh, continues uh, to this day as more and more parts of the borders have, have been closed between two countries. Thankfully, and you know, you mentioned that this relates to Ecuador, um, the Ecuadorian government is, has uh, offered itself and will look set to um, hold discussions between Venezuela and Colombia in order to see if some resolution can be uh, come to, to this current conflict. There are elections for the National Assembly scheduled for December. How important are they for the, the revolution? Oh, I, think, I think they're extremely important for two reasons. I think, firstly, of course, the, the ability for any government uh, to be able to uh, really push forward its agenda when it has a, a parliament that's uh, you know, hostile to it. Uh, and in the case of Venezuela, we're talking about extreme hostility. You, know, you can't really compare it uh, to, to, say, uh, in Australia, a, 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 a Liberal Prime Minister with a Labor government, given that the fact that two parties you know, vote on about 80% of the legislation together anyway. Uh, in Venezuela, everything is polarised. So even if you agree, you still vote against it just for the sake of opposition. So having a parliament you know, opposed to the the executive power would be a very complex situation for Maduro. But I think a further complicating factor would be that I, no doubt if the opposition was to win the elections, it would use that as a springboard to basically try to remove Maduro from power. And it would have two avenues possibly to do that. Firstly, would be to try and use its parliamentary majority to carry out what some have deemed to be a constitutional coup, uh, similar to what occurred in Paraguay, where they used their uh, majority, the opposition used their majority to impeach uh, Fernando Lugo, even though it was done you know, in dubious circumstances. They gave some kind of constitutional credibility to what was in essence a, a coup against a democratically elected president. And the other option that would be open to them uh, would be to convey, uh, to call for a, a recall referendum on Maduro, and obviously if they want a majority of the vote in the National Assembly elections, uh, their base would be very much motivated to go out and vote again, feeling that perhaps they could win a recall referendum and, and revoke uh, Maduro from the presidential palace. For what you're saying, there's a distinct possibility that that could happen, that they would get the majority. I, I think that's a distinct possibility if they got the majority. I, I think whether they're going to get a majority up, uh, is still up in the air. With Venezuela, you know, every election, you know, you'll be able to find 10 polls and each of them will tell you something different. So being able to predict exactly what the result is going to be like uh, is very difficult. But I think what, there are two things that can be said. One is that the Maduro government and the, the, the party, his party, the United Socialist Party of Venezuela, is facing a very difficult situation, difficult situation complicated by the tensions with Colombia, by some of the economic problems that, are, that are currently, the country is currently facing, and some of the sort of, I suppose, disillusionment amongst its voter base that may decide not to go and vote in December for, for the PSUB candidates. They probably won't go and vote for the opposition, but will decide to stay at home. But the other thing you can say is that if the PSUV has problems, well, the opposition probably has even bigger problems that continue to be divided, that continue to have a, have a base that, you know, has having tried to win through elections so many times and been defeated resoundingly so many times, has almost kind of given up on their ability to, to win by, by elections, uh, who are certainly not motivated by many of the opposition candidates who are just some of the same old faces, 
it's not it's certainly not a given who's going to win uh, these elections and, and i think the situation tends to change for now it seems like the psuv are, are probably a, a bit stronger in the sense that they they have a, an ability to mobilize large numbers of people to the voting booth and that gives them a, a solid base from which to start off whereas the opposition despite the, the pretense of unity, or they, they formed a coalition, continue to be largely made up of dozens of small parties, which each of their own, you know, hardly poll more than about 5-6%. So they're, they're going to make find it very difficult as well uh, to, to try to make sure that they can get enough people to the, to the voting booths uh, to out-poll um, those that the socialists will be mobilising. And is it a fact that in Venezuela there's, there's no doubt that elections are free and fair? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, of course, every election the opposition, well, every election the opposition lose, they come out and complain that, you know, this is unfair, and that the elections are rigged, that the, the electoral system is, you know, is, is, is set up in such a way that it's no transparency. Uh, but of course, we're talk- but when, when they win the elections, you know, they've got no, no, no qualms in accepting no, those results. And in fact, use that the very same electoral mechanism for their own internal primary elections. Uh, so I, I think, you know, from their, their double discourse is really just aimed at trying to delegitimise the government uh, and is in no way based on any serious attempt to, to provide evidence of any, any level of lack of transparency or democratic function of the, of the electoral process. And that's further aided by the fact that every time there are elections, there, you know, there, there's probably no elections in the world that are more monitored than the Venezuelan elections uh, in terms of countries from around the world sending observers and yet never has you know, anyone put forward any serious claim of, of fraud or anything like that uh, in terms of Venezuela's electoral process. Yeah, that's what I meant. Okay, thanks for that. No worries. And that was Fred Fuentes, who's a journalist and um, author, speaking about the situation in Ecuador and Venezuela. And that's all for me for the program. Jonathan is back with us today but let's hear a couple of community announcements before he takes the stage Saturday, September 26 will be the one year anniversary of the forced disappearance of 43 Mexican students from the teacher training college at Ayotzinapa These young activists were rounded up by police and reportedly handed over to a drug cartel Mexico solidarity groups around the world will be marking the anniversary by screening a new documentary about these events called Ayotzinapa, Chronicle of a State Crime. Ayotzinapa, Crónica de un Crimen de Estado. This film will have its Australian premiere in Melbourne in a one-night-only screening at RMIT City Campus. Starting at 6.30pm in Theatre 20, Building 80 on Swanson Street, on Saturday, September 26. Entry by donation. Visit the community calendar on the 3CR website for further details. This event is organised by Australians in Action for IOTNAPA. A 3CR supporter. That is all for me this time. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, so it's bye for now. And Jonathan will be here very, very soon.